Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 15, the third of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the early history of the Sumerians, touching on both the Ubaid and Uruk periods. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. Like most of these several-part episodes, there will be a little review of the previous episode interwoven into this one, but it shouldn't bore you, and it's really necessary for the narrative. This episode begins with the Sumerians and ends right when the Akkadians show up. As I covered in previous episodes, the Sumerians were indirectly mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 due to their association with the city of Uruk. More directly, the Akkadians were mentioned in the same chapter. Owing to this, it's probably a safe assumption that the chapter, or at least a portion of it, was written after the founding of these societies. And a little warning before I start. Unlike probably any other episode to date, this one is dense, and I really do mean thick, with names and dates. Not like I intended for the podcast to be structured. But it's also necessary to provide a foundation for what comes next. Further, it helps to provide some understanding for all of the areas mentioned in Genesis 10. In order to partially compensate, the episode is a little shorter in length, too. So let's get started. According to the Sumerian scholar Samuel Noah Kramer, the first ruler of Sumer, whose deeds are recorded, if only in the briefest kind of statement, is a king by the name of Etna of Kish, who may have come to the throne quite early in the 3rd millennium B.C., On the king list, he is described as he who stabilized all the lands. Like I've mentioned before, the Sumerian king list is a cuneiform document written by a scribe of the city of Lagash sometime around 2100 BC, and it lists all of the kings of the region along with their accomplishments in an attempt to show the continuity of order in society dating back to the beginning of civilization. The list is thought to have been created to legitimize the reign of a king named Uta Hegel of Uruk, who ruled around 2100 BC, by showing him as the most recent in a long line of rulers of the region. Uta Hegel, it is thought, was essentially trying to link himself to such earlier hero kings through the creation of the king list. But let's back up a bit. After the Uruk period, there was an early dynastic period, which is generally dated between 2900 and 2350 BC. It began after a cultural break with the preceding Jadep Nasser period, which lasted from about 3100 to 2900 BC. The beginning date has been established via radiocarbon dating of artifacts. No separate inscriptions have been found verifying any of the names of the kings that can be associated with the early dynastic period. So some researchers would consider this time period to be prehistory, But that is, unless, of course, you consider the king list to be a historical document. Texts from later in the early dynastic period have been found, but they are not yet understood. There were also inscriptions on tablets that bear the names of the kings mentioned on the king list. But these were written after the list, so they too may not be completely accurate, as they may have gotten their data from the list itself. The early dynastic period include such legendary figures as Inamurkar and Gilgamesh, who are supposed to have reigned shortly before the historic record opens about 2700 BC. I referenced Gilgamesh in both the Creation and Flood episodes. What does it mean that the historic record opened? Well, simply, this is when the now-deciphered syllabic writing started to develop from the early pictograms. 
Around 2600 BC, a subperiod, sometimes referred to as the Fara period, began where syllabic writing was first recorded. Accounting records in an undeciphered logographic script existed before the Fara period, but the full flow of human speech was first recorded at this time. During the dynastic period, the center of Sumerian culture remained in southern Mesopotamia. Even their rulers soon began expanding into neighboring areas, and neighboring Semitic groups adopted much of Sumerian culture for their own. After a flood occurred in Sumer, kingship is said to have resumed at Kish, with various city-states in their dynasties of kings temporarily gaining power over the others. A little sidebar on Kish itself. Like Ur, the actual location of Kish was lost as time progressed, but then, towards the beginning of the 20th century, clay tablets were uncovered from a mound called Tel Uhemur, located some 7.5 miles or 12 kilometers east of Babylon, and about 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Baghdad. All of these, of course, in present-day Iraq. It was actually Francois Thoreau Dagnan who identified the site as being that of Kish. A French archaeological team under Henri de Guinelac excavated the site between 1912 and 1914, finding about 1,400 old Babylonian tablets which were distributed to the Istanbul Archaeological Museum and the Louvre. Later, a joint field museum and University of Oxford team under Stephen Lagden excavated from 1923 to 1933, with recovered materials split between Chicago and Oxford. The actual excavations were initially led by Edward McKay, and later by L.C. Waitland. Work on the faunal and floral remains was conducted by Henry Field. And yes, Henry Field is from the same family that founded the Field Museum in Chicago. But back to the dynastic period. The earliest dynastic name on the king list, known from other legendary sources, is Etna, whom it calls the shepherd who ascended to heaven and consolidated all of the foreign countries, he was estimated to have lived around 2900 BC and considered to be the 13th king of the first dynasty of Kish. Among the 11 kings who followed, a number of Semitic Akkadian names are recorded, suggesting that these people made up a sizable proportion of the population of this northern city. The earliest monarch on the king list whose historical existence has been independently attested through archaeological evidence is Emma Bargassi of Kish, who ruled around 2600 BC. He was said to have defeated Elam and built the temple of Enlil in Nippur. His name is also mentioned in the Gilgamesh epic. This mention is the basis for the suggestion that Gilgamesh himself might have been a historical king of Uruk. As the epic of Gilgamesh demonstrates, this period was associated with increased violence. Cities became walled and increased in size as undefended villages in southern Mesopotamia disappeared. In fact, Gilgamesh is credited with having built the walls of Uruk. Imabargasi's successor, Aga, is said to have fought with Gilgamesh of Uruk, the fifth king of that city. From this time, for a while, Uruk seems to have some degree of power in Sumer. This illustrates a flaw in the Sumerian king list, as contemporaries are often placed in successive dynasties, making reconstruction of a believable timeline difficult but I'll give it my best shot, and I'll apologize in advance as I'm sure I'll completely mess up most, if not all, of the name pronunciations. And this list jumps around, so it may be hard to follow, but it does lay a necessary groundwork for the periods to come. Keep in mind, 
that during this time, Kish, Eric, Ur, Uruk, and Lagash all vied for control of the region for hundreds of years, rendering Sumer vulnerable to external conquerors. The dynasty of Lagash, though not included on the king list, is well documented through several important monuments and many archaeological finds. This dynasty is believed to have existed between about 2500 and 2270 BC. Although short-lived, one of the first empires known to history was that of Ianatuam of Lagash, who annexed virtually all of Sumer, including Kish, Uruk, Ur, and Larsa, and reduced the city-state of Uma, arch-rival of Lagash, to nothing more than a tributary. His kingdom extended to parts of Elam and along the Persian Gulf. He seems to have used terror and violence as a matter of policy. His empire collapsed shortly after his death, and I'll touch on this in a bit when I cover the militaries of the era. Meshkiangasher is listed as the first king of Uruk. He was followed by Imakar. The Epic of Imakar and the Lord of Erita tells of his voyage by river to Erita, a mountainous, mineral-rich country upstream from Sumer. He was followed by Lugobanda, also known from fragmentary legends and then by Dumazid, the fisherman. The most famous monarch of this dynasty was Dumazid's successor, of course, Gilgamesh, and the hero of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he is called Lugobanda's son. Ancient fragmentary copies of the Epic of Gilgamesh have been discovered in locations as far apart as Hattusas in Anatolia, Megiddo in present-day Israel, and Tel Armana in Egypt. This is among the many reasons this epic is considered the first work of literature in world history. The Ur dynasty is dated to about the 26th century BC. Meskalemdug is the first archaeological recorded king of the city of Ur. He was succeeded by his son Akalamadug and Akalamadug by his son Meshanapada. Meshanapada is the first king of Ur listed on the king list, and the list claims he defeated Lugal Kildu of Uruk. He also seems to have conquered Kish, therefore assuming the title King of Kish for himself. This title would be used by many kings of the preeminent dynasties for some time afterward, as it seems to convey regional authority. King Mesalam of Kish is known from inscriptions from Lagash and Adab stating that he built temples in those cities, where he seems to have held some influence. He is also mentioned in some of the earliest monuments from Lagash as refereeing a border dispute between Lugal Shatinger, the high priest or governor of Lagash, and a man in the similar position at their main rival, the neighboring town of Uma. Mesalem's placement in time relative to the reign of Mesa-Anapada in Ur is uncertain, primarily due to the lack of other names in the inscriptions that mention him, and from his absence from the king list. The Awan dynasty is dated to about the 26th century BC. According to the Sumerian king list, Elam, Sumer's neighbor to the east, held the kingship in Sumer for a brief period, based in the city of Awan. Elam is also mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They may get a separate episode after I wrap up the Sumerians. Inshakushana was the king of Uruk in the later 3rd millennium BC, who is named on the Sumerian king list, which states his reign to have been 60 years. He was succeeded in Uruk by Lugalkinshadudu, but authority seems to have passed briefly to Enatum of Lagash. Following this period, Mesopotamia seems to have come under the sway of a Sumerian conqueror from Adab, 
a city midway between present-day Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. The conqueror was named Lugal An Mindu, who ruled over Uruk, Ur, and Lagash. According to inscriptions, he ruled from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean and up into the Zagros Mountains. His territory also included Elam. However, his empire fell apart with his death. The king list indicates that Mari in Upper Mesopotamia was the next city to hold power over the region. The third dynasty of Kish, represented solely by Kug Bao, is unique in the fact that she was the only woman named on the king list to reign as king. You might remember her from the historical overview episode, as she had been a tavern keeper before overthrowing the power of Mari and becoming monarch. In later centuries, she was worshipped as a minor goddess, particularly at Charchemish, achieving some status in the Hurrian and Hittites periods. In the post-Hittite Phrygian period, she was called Kubali, the great mother of the gods. The city-state of Akshak, too, achieved independence with a line of rulers extending from Puzur-Nira, Ishilol, and Shushin, son of Ishilol, before being defeated by the rulers in the 4th dynasty of Kish in the 24th century BC. The first dynasty of Lagash is dated to the 25th century BC. In Hegel is recorded as the first known ruler of Lagash, but he was subservient to Uruk. His successor, Lugoshel Inger, was similarly subservient to Mishalem. Following the dominion of Meshapeda of Ur, Ernanshe succeeded Lugoshel Inger as the new high priest of Lagash and achieved independence, making himself the king. He defeated Ur and captured the king of Uma, named Pabil Gautuk and the ruins of a building attached by him to the temple of Nigashur, terracotta boss reliefs of the king and his sons have been found, as well as onyx plates and carved lion's heads in onyx, very similar to Egyptian artifacts. One inscription states that the ships of Dilmun, in modern-day Bahrain, brought him wood as a tribute from foreign lands, which of course in our modern mindset probably seems like a very boring tribute, but, considering it was recorded for posterity, it must have had significant meaning. Ernanshi was succeeded by his son, Akugal. Ianituam, the grandson of Ernanishi, made himself master of the whole of the area of Sumer, together with the cities of Uruk, Ur, Nippur, Akshak, and Larsa. He also annexed the kingdom of Kish. However, it recovered its independence after his death. Many areas of Mesopotamia were made tributaries with the tax of a certain amount of grain being levied upon each person in it, with the tax being paid into the treasury of their temples. Enanatum's military campaigns extended beyond the confines of Sumer, as he overran part of Elam, took the city of Az on the Persian Gulf, and extracted taxes as far away as Mari in present-day eastern Syria. However, many of the areas he conquered were often in revolt, as the technologies of communication and warfare had not caught up with their imperialistic desires. During his reign, temples and palaces were repaired or erected at Lagash and elsewhere. The town of Nina was rebuilt, and canals and reservoirs were excavated. Enanatum was succeeded by his brother Enanatum I. During his rule, Uma once more asserted independence under Ur-Lama, who attacked Lagash unsuccessfully. Ur-Lama was replaced by a priest-king, Ili, who attacked Lagash, because, well, it was the thing to do if you were from Uma. 
his son and successor in Tanana, restored the prestige of Lagash. Ili of Uma was subdued, and with the help of his ally, Lugokena Shidudu of Uruk, successor to Ikashikahana, and also on the king list. Lugokena Shidudu seems to have been the prominent figure at the time, since he also claimed to rule both Kish and Ur, a silver vase, thought to have been a possession in Tanana, is on display in the Louvre, a frise of lions devouring ibexes and deer, incised with great artistic skill, runs around the neck, while the eagle crest of Lagash adorns the globular part. The vase is demonstrative of the skill of the silversmiths of the era. I'll post a photo of it on the podcast Facebook page. Also, a vase of calcite, also dedicated to Intum Inna, has been found in Nippur. After Intum Inna, there was a series of weak priest kings in Lagash. The last of these weak priest kings, Urkagana, was also known for his judicial, social, and economic reforms, and his may well have been the first legal code known to have existed. I think this legal code is worthy of a short pause. In my mind, the code itself can provide some insight into the thoughts of the times. Urukaganat is best known for his reforms to combat corruption. Although the actual full text has not been discovered, much of its content may be surmised from other references to it that have been found. In this code, he exempted widows and orphans from taxes and required the city to pay funeral expenses including the ritual food and drink for the journey of the dead into the underworld. Specifically, the dead body was to be left with three jugs of beer and 80 loaves of bread. Also, the code decreed that the rich must use silver when purchasing from the poor. And if a poor person does not wish to sell whatever it is the rich person is seeking, the rich man cannot force him to do so. Not all of the code was as generous, though. It seems to have abolished the former custom of Landry in this country, instead requiring that if a woman was found to have multiple husbands, she was to be stoned with rocks upon which her crime is written. Some have posited that the code represents, quoting, the first written evidence of the degradation of women. In my research, I could find no prohibition of polygamy in the code. During the 3rd millennium BC, the Sumerians and the Akkadians became very much intermeshed which led to widespread bilingualism. In fact, to a certain degree, their cultures began to converge. This is key, since Sumerian is a language of which no related languages are known today. In the end, the Akkadian civilization won out as it gradually replaced Sumerian as the spoken language of Mesopotamia, somewhere around the turn of the 3rd to the 2nd millennium BC. But the Sumerian language continued to be used as a sacred, ceremonial, literary, and scientific language in Mesopotamia until the first century AD. Now that to me is amazing, and I don't know if something similar can be found anywhere else in the Western world. For over 2,000 years, a language remained in use in some form or another. The only thing that may come close is that of Latin which certain areas of Christianity and the scientific community still use. But even that scope is much more limited. Also, not to be lost, but the written language was different from the spoken language, no doubt making communication difficult, perhaps needlessly difficult. Urukagina, sometime around 2350 BC, 
was overthrown in his city of Lagash, captured by Lugol Zagazi, the high priest of Uma. About the same time, Lugol Zagazi took Ur and Uruk, making Uruk his capital. In a long inscription engraved on hundreds of stone vases dedicated to the Enlil of Nippur, he boasts that his kingdom extended from the lower sea, probably the Persian Gulf, along the Tigris and Euphrates to the upper sea, probably the Mediterranean. Researchers believe that he was the last ethnically Sumerian king, at least for a while. His empire was overthrown by Sargon of Akkad, marking the beginning of the Akkadian Empire. That's probably just as good of a point as any to end this episode. And frankly, with all of those names and dates, I'm a little worn out. But, after studying the material, I believe there is one key takeaway from the history of this era of the Sumerians. Resources and political power were distributed across the several city-states, such that a strong ruler from one or the other could gain control over the region for a generation, or maybe up to three generations. But then, another big man would rise up within a neighbor and seize control. This trend would continue until Sargon. Join me next week when I'll dive into the Akkadians. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. Believe it or not, this helps others to learn about it. And I've made this request for a couple of weeks now, and many of you have taken me up on it. And for that, I am appreciative. But judging by the download reports I get from the web hosting company, there are many, many more regular listeners who have not. But that's entirely up to you. If you're enjoying the podcast, also go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. That too will help others to find it. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.